Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today, my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss the current legal status of psychedelic therapy in the U.S. and other countries. We discuss how things are going with the Oregon and Colorado initiatives. Reed talks about his recent experience testifying in front of Utah state legislators in support of a bill that would legalize psilocybin-assisted therapy here in Utah. We talk about uh, Australia that recently rescheduled MDMA and psilocybin for therapeutic use and explore the pros and cons of state-by-state legalization or decriminalization efforts versus uh, the FDA approval pathway. And of course, we discuss much, much more. Quick plug for the unique training opportunities that Numinous has for mental health practitioners that want to develop expertise in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you're interested, you can head over to numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training to learn more. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by subscribing to the show, by leaving us a review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and of course, sharing this episode with somebody you think might be interested in listening to it. Thanks for listening. Here's today's episode. Hey, Steve. Hey, Reed. How you doing today? So good. I'm, yeah, I'm always that good. good. <laughs> it's okay. That good. Okay, yeah. well... Today, we're talking about legalization and decriminalization. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that you could start by giving us a little primer, primer, premier, <laughs> premier <laughs> on what is the difference? What do we mean by those? Well, I will admit I am not a legal scholar. Um, Disclaimers. And so I'll probably get it wrong. But, uh, you know, I think that the efforts at legalization versus decriminalization are hot right now in the psychedelic space as we look Mm -hmm. at a bunch of different states working on their own programs, feeling impatient about the FDA approval process, and certainly not uh, not super optimistic, at least a lot of us, not super optimistic about um, federal legalization, uh, like along with cannabis, but certainly psychedelics. Uh, but as I understand it, you know, legalization, as just like the word sounds like it would imply, means that that, some, that psychedelics would be legal. Legal either to own for personal use, legal to cultivate and grow oneself, or legal for, you know, medicinal use. Whereas, again, correct me if I get it wrong, decriminalization would just make it uh, like a low law enforcement priority wouldn't make it entirely legal or would make it legal under certain limited circumstances, but maybe not for something like personal possession. Yeah. And the decriminalization efforts are in part to not waste resources on fighting enforcement wars on drugs that don't matter, mm-hmm. right? Like putting people in jail for possessing psilocybin, for mm-hmm. example, which has happened. Right. right? Well, and this goes all the way back to the to Nixon's declaration of war on <laughs> on drugs, which ended up being a declaration of war on drug users. Um, and there's lots of controversy around sort of the motives, yeah. political and and maybe uh, uh, not so political motives for the declaring the war on drugs. But I remember hearing like recordings of Nixon saying, "We need a full." frontal assault or something like that, like a full on assault, an offensive, I think was the word he used. Mm -hmm. All this, this military lingo that we need to battle this problem of 
drugs, of drug use and, and drug addiction. And it's, I think, you know, most of the people that have looked carefully at this would say at the very least that the war on drugs failed, failed to certainly protect, protect citizens. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything made things a whole lot worse, it led to the incarceration of a lot of people, nonviolent offenders who were using substances. Um, so yeah, I think we're trying to walk back from this war on drugs and the state legalization and decriminalization efforts are, are running up against resistance that I think is a product of a lot of propaganda. So you have the people who are the decision makers and a lot of these legislators who have it deep in their psyches that drugs bad under any mm -hmm. circumstance unless prescribed by your doctor. Yeah. I remember, well, back in 2019, Denver became the first city to decriminalize psychedelics or drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and even back then when we did that uh, Intermountain Psychedelics Conference, early 2020, I think it was, uh, there were groups there like Decriminalize Nature, Decriminalize mm -hmm. SLC, talking about putting forth legislation in Utah. It hasn't, you know, nothing stuck, but certainly many cities, many parts of the country have started to decriminalize, meaning deprioritize mm -hmm. prosecution of you know, possessing a certain amount of these substances. Right. We're either going to make it the lowest law enforcement priority or we're not going to allocate any funds for the prosecution of, you know, uh, drug related, these types of drug related offenses. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like I, I pulled up a list of at least a dozen cities that have put it in that category, like lowest law enforcement priority. Sometimes it's that plus law enforcement defunded. Mm-hmm against this, but maybe we just look at, at Colorado or Denver as an example, but then focus on the legalization discussion because mm -hmm. that's a hot topic, uh, in Utah, because there's a psilocybin bill that just got debated the other day. We'll mm -hmm. talk about, and because Oregon is now starting the rollout of this, uh, legal psilocybin framework and Colorado has one coming too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see states do this. Because, you know, just because a, a state, an individual state, um, legalizes or decriminalizes a substance, it doesn't protect you from federal prosecution. Like it's, I, I listened to a podcast this morning, uh, one of the psych Psychedelics Today podcasts with uh, Catherine Tucker. She's a lawyer and she was talking about this on there. If you're interested, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's the February 10th, 2023 episode. Cool. Uh, David Drapkin, our friend, did a, did a great job interviewing her. But Good job, David. Yeah. <laughs> And your beautiful British accent, but I oh, know it helps. <laughs> it we don't have that. Incredibly, we don't. <laughs> yeah, but um, she was talking about this this risk. Like even in places like Oregon or Denver, Oregon opens these psilocybin treatment centers. Mm -hmm. It it is still technically possible that a center like that could be sued by the federal government or even raided because they're still in violation of of federal law. So. Um, there was an example of this that she gives of safe injection sites where I can't remember which state, but it was, they were going to open mm -hmm. this safe opiate, like heroin injection site to, uh, protect these folks, give them safe places to use their drugs. And, um, before they could open, they were, they were sued successfully by, I don't, I, I think it was sued, but by the, by the federal government, by the DEA. Yeah. And that discussion gets nuanced and mm. a little tricky and we won't get caught in the weeds of that. Not that we even could. We're not no. lawyers. This is just <laughs> this is just an update yeah. <laughs> and a report on how it was at, on Capitol Hill in Utah the other day. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
how Oregon is doing in their rollout. But um, yeah, so, but on the decrim front, mm-hmm. Denver, I think it was 2019, they became the first U.S. city to deprioritize law enforcement for possession of psilocybin. It was Initiative 301 back then that states that psilocybin possession is the lowest law enforcement priority. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, uh, there's some discomfort there of what does that mean? <laughs> right. Like, are you really safe? And um, practically speaking, decriminalization doesn't give anyone any way or of buying it. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you where or how to obtain it. It's just if, if you happen to grow it or have it under a certain amount, uh, you there won't be big law enforcement efforts with funding to put you in jail. Right. Right. So for people who are, um, who want to take advantage of the potentially useful therapeutic, I'm I'm stumbling with my words here, but like potential of something like psilocybin, they hear decriminalization and you're right. It's a little ambiguous. Does that mean I can go buy it Mm -hmm. or would I buy it? Does that now mean that I can give it to a friend or like what, what kind of danger am I in here? Yeah. So a few months later, I guess this is 2020, uh, Denver, actually all of Colorado put this House Bill 19-1263 into effect that made possession of four grams or less of a Schedule One or Two, um, like less enforced, a Level One drug misdemeanor, mm. which is still a thing. And they had some exceptions like GHB, always not allowed. Mm. And if, if it's your fourth offense of possession then it's bad. <laughs> How do they come up with these things? It seems so arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then it becomes a drug felony. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, they did an interesting one last year in Colorado, uh, another House bill that said, and this was signed into law in June, it says that if the FDA approves MDMA, and if it's not Schedule One or is exempt from provisions, um, which it presumably will need to be to mm-hmm. get FDA approved, then in Colorado, prescribing dispensing and using it, using MDMA for PTSD is legal. Mm. Even though, I might have misunderstood, even though it would still be Schedule 1? Like if it becomes if it's FDA. Not. Oh, if it's not. If it gets, yeah. So it's kind of a funny one. Yeah. Because I thought I heard that there are some provisions where it's supposed to be like drugs that are on schedule one should be automatically rescheduled if they're FDA approved. Is yeah. That not the case. Yeah. So that's what this bill is, is about is that, uh, in Colorado, they're just kind of preemptively saying that yeah. we're on board <laughs> when this happens, but it doesn't practically open up any access. Right? I think, it, you know, psilocybin has received breakthrough res- designation by the FDA as in or like as a potentially useful therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I think when something receives breakthrough designation, even though it's still in phase two and three clinical trials, mm-hmm. it should be automatically rescheduled at that point. Yeah. And MDMA has that same fast track mm-hmm. designation of a breakthrough therapy, meaning it's an FDA thing where if something shows promise and the population it's intended for is really suffering and time is of the essence, um, it fast tracks somewhat the very slow process. It still takes years and millions of dollars, mm-hmm. but but both psilocybin and MDMA are on that track. Yeah. And that's one of the arguments for this sort of state level decrim legalization for therapeutic use is that it, it, it makes this process faster for people who really, really need the help. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, it's to me as a military veteran myself, it is tragic that all, many of our veterans who have discovered that these substances are very helpful, are very helpful for PTSD have to leave our country, the country that they served in the military and yeah. got PTSD as a result. They have to leave this country in order to get effective treatment. Like that's, that's pretty gross. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's immoral in my opinion. Yeah. And the argument I think is valid, um, saying that even though it's called fast track and it sounds fast, this is not in fact that fast when people are suffering and suicides are occurring. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing that people may not understand is even when something is FDA approved, these drugs will have a REM system, a risk evaluation management system attached to them that make it impossible to prescribe it off-label for anything other than the one indication it's approved for mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, for for MDMA, that will be PTSD, presumably, mm-hmm. if it gets approved. And for psilocybin, with Compass, it's treatment-resistant depression. USONA is going for major depressive disorder, further behind in the process, a little bit. Um, so it won't be available to people with other conditions right. through the FDA pathway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, you know, I guess there, there is an argument for that type of restriction. Like we want to study these things thoroughly. We want to make sure that they're not used for indications that, um, you know, the scientific method hasn't shown they are safe and effective for, um, so I guess I kind of I kind of get it from that perspective. I get why the more conservative folks would want to take it very very slowly and cautiously. Mm-hmm. But I don't know when 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 you look at the research and when you do the clinical trials like you and I do. I mean, you spent twelve hours in a room with somebody yesterday who may or may not have been on LSD because it's a placebo controlled trial. So, yep. That <laughs> um, you see the potential, the healing potential for these substances to be used for a variety of conditions. And also there's the assumption that, you know, depression is a discrete condition, that PTSD is a discrete condition. We've talked a lot about like how mental illnesses are diagnosed and how they're conceptualized in something like the DSM. Um, They really aren't as discrete as as maybe the layperson thinks they are. So if something really, really helps for depression, it would probably, I'm not going to, you know, declare with certainty here, but it, 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 you could make a, a pretty good argument that would also really help for, PTSD or OCD or anxiety. Yeah. And it gets interesting when you look at both the state legislation around psilocybin, like in Oregon, we'll talk about that example that pretty much lets prescribers prescribe it for anything, including religious and spiritual expansion. Yeah. Isn't it an Oregon, isn't it called adult use? 21 and up. Yeah. Yeah. But it has to be in the centers, mm-hmm. um, in the centers, dispensed there, heavily tracked, and you're taking it with the therapy team sitting there. Or the Would they even use the word prescribe? Yeah, the, prescribe or medical referral. Okay. Yeah. Because it sounds like, you know, spiritual exploration or the increase, in, increase of creativity or whatever, that's, that's not an illness that you're trying to treat, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, spiritual growth and religious experience are somehow covered in that, but mm-hmm. still by prescription or medical referral. Hmm. Yeah, and so that's where we're at. And maybe we talk about Oregon first of all because that's furthest along. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when was it? Back in uh, about November 2020, mm-hmm. Measure 109 was passed in Oregon. High profile, first of its kind in the country, uh, cr- allowing psilocybin therapy legally. Right. And what what that meant is there was a two year rollout period for the state to figure out what this was going to look like. And that has just ended last month. Mm-hmm. Now we're supposed to be in the time when you can get it. It's it's not there yet. No one's gotten it yet um, because these things, the whole industry is being created essentially right. um, with a lot of hoops to jump through. And uh, so that's where that's where it's at. Um, well, in, in Oregon, saw some resistance at the county level, if I remember right. Like some of yeah. the counties opted out. So there's only a few Oregon counties that are going to uh, allow for these service centers to be established. Yeah, last last year, and I think it was uh, city level as well in some ways, but a lot of um, jurisdictions like that said they had the chance to say, no, not in my backyard, mm-hmm. and they did. You know, like Portland's an example where they didn't. There's no geographic restrictions, but you still need all the business licenses. So what it, there are four different licenses, licenses essentially. There's those who manufacture it or grow it, cultivate it. There's the laboratory testing of it. There's the service centers where you get it. And then there's facilitators who mm-hmm. have to get licensed as well. And uh, so there was an update I saw like yesterday, where it said that uh, there were only some of those categories haven't even received applications yet because mm-hmm. they're still getting worked out. The organizations offering the the training, the certification, and people getting the businesses set up in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that two year development period happened. All the rules had to be in place by end of December, which. I guess they were, and now it's still taking some time for the licensing. Um, but basically it says that psilocybin needs to be cultivated by a licensed manufacturer, um, and they set up operations. Then there's a service center, a clinic essentially has to be owned, majority owned by someone from Oregon. Right, locals. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then the facilitators need training, and the training is... Uh, 120 hours mm-hmm. of the therapist training. And that's been an interesting industry to watch pop up because the trainings cost on average five to $10,000 to get trained, but sometimes a lot more. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen, I think $50,000 or something like that. Which is an important point because a lot of people talk about access to this care being limited because of how expensive the care will be itself. But sometimes that's a trickle down effect of how expensive it is to train the people giving the care or spin up one of these shops or maintain these shops. I mean, they still have to be profitable enough to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. And I was wrong. I misspoke. It's 160 hours of training, 40 in-person practicum where you're facilitating, observing non-ordinary states. I've seen pictures in some articles of someone with eye shades listening to music in a room. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I haven't followed it closely enough, but are you aware of any of like the details on the training requirements or if there are... Um, contracts being made with certain organizations to provide that training? Yeah, yeah. So there are a bunch of training programs already doing the training. Like I'll I'll list some off as an example. Earth Medicine Center with kind of a shamanic uh, Mm. character to it, um, partnered with indigenous plant medicine communities and teaches from an ecological perspective. There's some leeway, like you have to have 120 
hours that could be entirely online and then the 40 in person. And they have to uh, give get people to a level of training where the graduates could have the knowledge and skills required to be a facilitator. And there is an exam by the state at mm. the end. So they have to pass an exam. And then, uh, yeah, the lead instructor of the program has to endorse them as qualified, able to provide services. And, and so as of uh, even last summer, there were eight programs approved, four others in the, in the works. And uh, another example would be the Alma Institute, a nonprofit um, that MAPS is donated to, mm. um, Synaptic Care Institute, um, Inner Trek, um, started by one of the one of the kind of chief proponents of the 109 measure, Tom Eckert. Oh yeah, saw him speak at Horizons. Yeah, yeah, and Fluence has has a psilocybin training. Mm-hmm. They're one of the well-known psychedelic training programs out there. Yeah. Um, Subtle Winds, Sound Mind, Vital Oregon from our friends at Psychedelics Today, mm-hmm. and. Uh, even UC Berkeley announced that they'll have an Oregon training program um, and Michael Pollan's like an advisor. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, what's the practicum supposed to look like then? Because when I hear practicum, I, I, what pops into my head is these people need supervised experience facilitating psilocybin sessions. Yeah, and they can't, that's not part of the training program. There's no legal framework for a psilocybin experience right. there like there is in Canada. Like Theracil has done mm-hmm. some really cool things, a nonprofit up north of the border. But I believe it's uh, other things like breathwork or even listening to music and practicing the support mm-hmm. and the skills needed. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how this, especially that practicum piece, how they they've people navigate meeting that requirement. Um, I know that like when I went through the MAPS MDMA training, they wanted us to have a little bit of practical experience. Like a, a, I think it was only like 10 hours or something like that. And they said, yeah, go, go out there and do some holotropic breath work. Or if mm-hmm. you can, if, if you qualify, you can go get some like a ketamine experience or something like that, or experiential training as part of a clinical trial. But yeah, the, the options are very limited. Yeah. Here's some topics that they cover like safety, pharmacology, ethics, core skills of facilitators, mm-hmm. um, cultural equity in relation to psilocybin. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's what it looks like. A lot of the topics that we cover in our Fundamentals of Psychedelic Assisted Therapy course, right, mm-hmm. that we offer here at Numinous. Yeah, yeah. And so another thing that's probably of interest is what the actual process looks like to what the course of treatment looks like. So there's a preparation session. When a client gets a medical referral or a prescription, then they go into the licensed clinic that bought it from the licensed facility and it was tracked on delivery. I don't know if this is armored cars or what, or some (laughs) psilocybin delivery vehicle. Right, yeah, a mushroom-shaped car or something. Yep. And uh, so there's a preparation session at least 24 hours before the first dose. Mm. The administration session, client comes in, consumes the mushrooms, uh, facilitator with the the licensed facilitator. And uh, interestingly, the integration session uh, is optional. Mm. Yeah, completely optional. To follow up with a licensed facilitator and learn about additional peer support and other resources. Interesting. 
Yeah. I wonder why they made it optional. I imagine yeah. some thought went into that. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't have made it that way. I don't, that's <laughs> why I'm wondering. Cause yeah, I, I wouldn't have made it optional. We talk a lot about how important integration is on this show. You know, um, it, it arguably integration is the most important thing. I mean, certainly you don't integrate if you don't have the experience. So dosing is important, but yeah, I mean, kind of the point is to make substantive changes in your life and yeah. psychedelic experiences can be hard to, uh, to make sense of and integrate into your daily life without help. And I would argue that if you really like come in and look at the clinical trial data with fresh eyes, mm -hmm. um, it is not fully known uh, the value, the need, the uh, the frequency of integration that would be optimal. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at some of the end of life anxiety studies, um, you know it's the profound experience that matters most and of course we want to surround people with the best support possible and follow up for safety and everything else um, but I know uh, like in other clinical trial psychedelic drug development pathways like like we're doing the mind med study mm -hmm. the the therapy is de-emphasized compared to what MAPS is doing with MDMA for PTSD where right. there's 40 hours of therapy and intense, as we've discussed, as as you and I both know, very mm -hmm. intense therapist training. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so to your point, the clinical trials, just to sort of emphasize what you're saying, they're not really studying the therapy as a as an independent variable as much as they are studying- The medicine. The medicine. Like in a psilocybin study, placebo-controlled psilocybin study, for example, both groups get the therapy one group gets placebo. Mm -hmm. And so we're not able to fully answer that question yet, right? Um, so we do talk a lot about integration. We believe in mm -hmm. integration and it's not gonna hurt, but uh, there is that open question of like how much, what kind, and mm -hmm. and uh, like the essential nature of it. Because clinical trials, it's interesting. Like ketamine got studied as a medicine, IV, initially, and then the studies kind of continued. Very few CAP studies, mm -hmm. you know, now they're starting to come out, but certainly no like good, big controlled CAP studies. Mm -hmm. um, psychedelics came in under this framework of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and they get studied that way, um, but not in a way of like medicine plus therapy versus medicine no By therapy. Itself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like you said, it sounds like MAPS is probably the one that has the most heavy-handed focus on psychotherapy. Um, the, the, and they even have a, a particular psychotherapy model, like this interdirected mm -hmm. approach that they're testing alongside MDMA. Which uh, other medicines, psilocybin, de-emphasize that a little bit, mm -hmm. a little bit, um, and then L LSD um, even more so. Mm -hmm. Like they're still the same kind of facilitator support and still integration visits as part of the protocol. Um, but it's interesting to look at with MAPS and MDMA going up first against the FDA as the first psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, it create it may create an interesting bar mm -hmm. that the other medicines to follow will be evaluated against. Um, mm -hmm. And it may not make sense in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot more research to be done. And again, to harken back to a to the point I was making earlier about the slower, quote unquote, safer uh, scientific pathway, um, in order to feel really confident that 
psychedelic assisted psychotherapy or specific medicine assisted psychotherapy is safe and effective, like it needs to be studied thoroughly. But I don't know that we need to study every single possible combination of medicine and therapeutic intervention to say that it could be useful. We can at least say through these initial studies that the medicine isn't dangerous enough and useless enough to be on Schedule 1. Yeah, and that's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Like, these things were made Schedule 1 inappropriately, Mm -hmm. I think we could all argue, because Schedule 1 means that it's scary and has no potential therapeutic benefit. That's the part that's not true, mm-hmm. right? Um, they may, depending on how you define it, they may have, of course, everything has risks. Psychotherapy has risks, right? I mean, there, in some rare cases, going to a therapist can make a person worse, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, email me and tell me a medical intervention that doesn't have some risk, right? Yeah. I mean, just about all of them do. And I think that was kind of the, maybe, and if you're ready to segue into the Utah bill um, and your experience on Capitol Hill, uh, I think that that was sort of the point that a lot of people are trying to make, trying to get this House bill yeah. 200 or Senate bill 200 passed here in Utah is that, um, yes, FDAs were going through that process, but it's needlessly slow given what the data already say. Let's, let's hustle here in Utah and get this healing mm-hmm. modality to people quicker. And the argument that people are already using it. They're Mm -hmm. seeking it in the underground. And wouldn't it be better to provide people a legal framework um, through which to do that? Mm -hmm. Because um, in the underground, where it's completely unregulated, you don't have licenses of facilitators that give people some comfort. I know this is a debate. I'm not, there's a whole indigenous tradition Mm -hmm. and other spiritual religious uses that that make sense and uh there's no guarantee of of getting a rock solid ethical perfect facilitator crowd across your program but uh but there is an argument that it could protect people by having a way because they're going to go access it they are anyway that's the safe injection site argument too right or the argument to just legalize all drugs you know, we, that we could invoke Carl Hart, you know, mm-hmm. in, <laughs> yeah. in the conversation that, that making drug use and possession illegal, something that you could be thrown in jail for, uh, under the idea that, that uh, if it's not, if there aren't severe penalties, people will become dangerous menaces to society because they're using drugs. Um, that might not be true. And, yeah. and, and the argument being that making it illegal and prosecuting people and throwing them in jail does uh, way more harm than it does protection for the public good. Yeah, yeah. And so before we dive into Utah details, there's one more interesting thing about Oregon's program is uh, when you come into the service center and get a dose, um, the dose can be, if it's less than 2.5 milligrams of psilocybin, which can be done, like that's a tiny dose, you might only need to spend an hour there. Hmm. And up to six hours, if you take a high dose, like 35 to 50 milligrams, that's like 35 to 50 is five dried grams equivalent or more, right? So they're going to be dosing with synthetic psilocybin then? No, well, that's just, um, it's getting reported that way because, I mean, there's testing on potency. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding. I'm not... Uh, I'm not involved and uh, I don't have rock solid up to date awareness of this, but 
my um, guess is that it's being reported that way because there is interstrain variability and potency. Like uh. if you're taking uh, one gram of penis envy versus one gram of golden teacher uh, psilocybe mushrooms, then there's a difference in potency. Mm. And so the the solid way around that is to report in psilocybin milligrams. milligrams like. Yeah. Like the studies do, like the studies we're doing with psilocybin are typically 25 milligrams of psilocybin mm -hmm. for depression, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's, uh, I thought that was interesting yeah. that you could come in and get a 10th of a dose for an hour, like <laughs> trichotillomania. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Just chill out. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, Reed, tell us a little bit about your experience on Utah Capitol Hill the other day. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting time for Utah, for the country. I mean, you look at the legislation tracker maps and the decriminalization efforts. It is psychedelic uh, awareness and uh, like legislation is spreading kind of like wildfire when you look at it over the past couple of years. Um, and Utah, so Senator Escamina Luz introduced that Senate Bill 200 mm -hmm. in Utah that was just uh, that just went to committee the other day, and I was asked to go up there. I think it was Wednesday, mm -hmm. and present some of the science. So it was in a Senate committee hearing, and this is a, f a few days after the governor had made a comment when he was caught off guard by a press question of, like, what do you think of the psilocybin bill? And he's like, he didn't really know much about it. He's like, I don't know. We're not going to experiment on Utah, and so it was taken to believe that he's against it. And mm -hmm. it was also supposed to be in committee the week before, but got delayed. Like there are some tactics that happen when bills are heated and complicated. Um, so it finally went to committee um, and Senator Escamilla Escam yeah. uh, presented it with a really heartfelt uh, argument that there's a mental health epidemic right. and people are suffering. There's a suicide epidemic. And, um, and so I shared a few minutes of, uh, of data on the safety. Like this is a drug that's impossible to have a lethal overdose with mm -hmm. and has little to no abuse liability, um, can even be anti-addictive in the right kind of framework with the right therapy. And, uh, that there's a whole lot of, uh, growing evidence to support its use for certain mental health conditions. I cited some key studies from the last couple of years, like uh, showing about a 70% response rate on psilocybin compared to either placebo or, or SSRI. Um, and this is by taking one, two, three doses, not a daily pill, and that these effects seem to be lasting. Like there was one follow-up study that showed... Uh, even 12 months later, there were sustained benefits, which is which is pretty amazing, mm -hmm. right? Like, very promising. And I just made the argument that, uh, in my opinion, the benefits far outweigh the risks of opening up access in a careful way to people who need it because people are suffering, like from mental health conditions, big time. Utah ranks consistently alarmingly high in suicide rate. Mm -hmm. And... Um, in fact, I was uh, involved in the Utah suicide study a decade ago uh, when I was at the University of Utah, and we would analyze every suicide and accidental overdose in the state of Utah for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, and 
it's uh it's a huge concern here and so that's uh the argument i made is that that it would save lives it would save lives and mm -hmm. and i also agree with uh you know being cautious and careful with you know how these things are put forth and i also know that legislation is a political thing right? right like medical cannabis the list of indications is not from the science as much as it is from the the legislators writing it yeah um, the political appetite yeah um so and then after that uh connor boyack of libertas presented a really compelling uh, case for allowing it because people are accessing it already and this is a lot more conservative than medical cannabis, people don't take it home. It's in licensed facilities. So um, maybe to back up, this would allow it for um, depression, anxiety, end of life anxiety, PTSD even, and uh, it would be taken in licensed facilities with licensed facilitators who have to go through a training program and prescribers need some kind of training too, and grown, cultivated, in approved facilities, transported, tracked, Oregon-like. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was a, a coin toss or less to begin with in Utah. Like Utah um, doesn't want to be one of the first states to do things like this, mm -hmm. even though there is surprising openness. Like this, from what I heard, was so much less heated than the medical cannabis debates were. Like mm -hmm. those were gnarly. This was... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there there was public comment after on both sides, right? And uh, like we were watching some of that just before. Yeah. It was interesting to see some of the public comment um, and the rationale behind on both sides of, of pushing this bill forward or squashing it. And, you know, I'd never observed, I watched a little bit of that video, I've, ne I've never observed a um, political process like this before. And so it was a little jarring for me to see these, you know, they allowed you like 60 seconds to make <laughs> your point and they're beeping you if you're taking too long. Yep. And, you know, the, the the people hearing this, the senators hearing this just seem bored out of their minds. They must, it must have been like the fifth bill or whatever they'd heard. And, and they're, 50, yeah. they're, they're just trying to like move it through. And I, I made the comment to you before we recorded, I'm sure if they'd any, had any time to review this, most of them had made up their minds before any of you started talking. And we're, we're probably not super likely to to change a vote based yeah. on the testimony in that moment? I don't know. And that was the outcome. No one really wanted, it, it felt bigger than them. So the committee mm. just voted to table it for further discussion, which means April or May it'll get discussed because they're doing bill after bill in this legislative session. And this is too much. It's a big, yeah, yeah it's big. Um, so that is promising. Like it's a, Victory in terms of awareness mm -hmm. and um, receptivity by a good part of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a good debate to have, right? I think so. I think it's an important debate to have. And yeah. as a native Utahn, uh, I'm proud of Utah. I'm proud of the people mm -hmm. who, who put this bill together, who did all the really, really hard work. Yeah. Senator Escamilla for, you know, for spearheading this. Mm -hmm. And like you, people like you who showed up in support of it, um, you know, I, I still even though it might just by listening to this episode, it might sound like I'm just sort of this unapologetic advocate for making all drugs legal. Steve's a jerk. I know. <laughs> Irresponsible. No, I, I, I'm, a, I'm even a little conflicted about this. Yeah. Um, 
But I think, you know, I don't really have, I don't think I can improve on what you said with respect to what the data suggest mm-hmm. and the benefits outweighing the costs. Yeah. And uh, the public debate was interesting, like you said, because there were uh, patients speaking about their experience, um, like a veteran who just so powerfully, eloquently shared his healing experience with it, um, with one dose, Mm. and a a therapist who'd had her own experience and wanted that for her clients because it was so profound. And then there was the Utah Medical Association that came out and said, no, we we say wait for the FDA path. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of the conservative default stance of big organizations. Even the the American Psychiatric Association came out and opposed vocally Measure 109 in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And our at the time, uh, our company, Novamind, this is before we were acquired by Numinous, we came out with a statement supporting it. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it was... Interesting, and I and I'll say even a little bit fun to participate in that debate uh, against uh, like the Utah Medical Association and the um, the drug. What was the one? The lady spoke on behalf of the Drug Safe Utah. Or oh, the, okay, the yeah, gentleman. Yeah. yeah, Drug Safe Utah. Yeah, well, and even the Drug Safe Utah. I mean, that implies let's keep drugs out of the hands of people at all costs. And certainly, there are compelling arguments to make it difficult to have some hoops to go through, some regulation for people to access powerful mind-altering substances. There, are, The more libertarian argument is people, should, especially adults, maybe only adults, should have liberty of consciousness. Yeah. You know, access. education, and if people want to alter consciousness, that's fine. Especially with, like, like, you know, you made the case with a drug that is essentially anti-addictive, is impossible to overdose with. Um, but it's, that doesn't, we're not trying to imply that it is just super safe for anyone or everyone to take. You can overdose and lose your mind for a time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And there, we were talking before we hit record, like there are some documented cases of people being, uh, engaging in unsafe behavior, even violent behavior on psychedelics. Uh, back, uh, a decade ago, I was running a psych the psych consult service for Utah's biggest hospital, mm-hmm. IMC in Murray. And I'd start the day in the ER for anyone who was like camped out over there needing a psych consult, make my way up the floors and then see people throughout the day who'd come into the ER. And occasionally there would be um, bad trips come in. Like, mm. like there were a lot of like meth bad trips. Mm. Like that's a, d- a different a different animal, of course, but, right. but I remember a couple times there would be someone like a young adult or teenager who used uh, LSD unplanned in a high dose at a party and just um, in a state of kind of panic or fear was running down the street and, and, and where do people go when they're caught, picked up by the police mm-hmm. running down the street as they're brought to the ER. Yeah. yeah. And the likelihood of something like that happening at a facility like we're describing with licensed providers is super low would be my assertion um, because set and setting matter. The the yeah. situation you just described is somebody who's caught off guard by an altered state experience and doesn't have people around them who know how to help them. Yeah. You might freak out and run down the street. Um, so yeah, the argument isn't necessarily like just start selling LSD at gas stations. Um which I think is sometimes the fear that some of these people who testified in opposition to this bill 
uh, is based on. Like this idea that drugs are just going to, like children are going to be taking it, they're going to have easy free access, their minds are going to melt into mush, and it's going to be an epidemic of insane people uh, whose brains have been melted by drugs. Yeah. You know what's interesting to point out is I think back to those psych consult days and um, even like the the meth or the other, the hard drug, mm -hmm. um, bad trips or overuse or um, intoxication cases that I'd see, um, which were sometimes scary. Like I remember someone who jumped off a high height, not because they wanted to end their life, but because they thought they could fly on mm -hmm. a high dose of meth. But what's interesting is prescribers can prescribe methamphetamine for ADHD. Mm -hmm. Like you can write, and I, I have before. It's an old school medicine that people don't often prescribe, but uh, it's called desoxin or methamphetamine. Like if you give it in 10 milligrams for ADHD, it does one thing. If you give it in 1,000 milligrams on the street, a completely different thing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, dopam enough dopamine for a state of psychosis. Right. Yeah, yeah those matters. So, yeah, it does. And and uh, it shows why, you know, psilocybin shouldn't be Schedule 1 if methamphetamine is not yeah. in that way, right? I mean, those differences are just... Uh, anybody who spends 10 seconds <laughs> looking at that stuff, it just seems hilarious that your doctor can give you something akin to heroin or meth uh, by prescription, and that's considered safer and more therapeutic than something like psilocybin for mental yeah. health conditions. Yeah, so so in Utah, it's to be continued, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it was really, uh, I thought it was really neat to see this come up um, in Utah, kind of early in the, uh, I don't know, when you look at all the states uh, starting to think about these things. It's going to be an interesting year um, to see what, what other states and cities are able to pass, and um, it's sort of this groundswell sentiment that hopefully will trickle up and influence legislation at the national level. Mm -hmm. So um, back to Colorado, back in November, they passed Prop 122. So they became the second state that has to create or start a regulated program for accessing psychedelics um, through state-sanctioned healing centers. And interestingly, just by way of update, um, that's they the the departments the governmental agencies have until one year from now like January 2024 to establish the education training requirements and then September 2024 rules for implementing the program so it's going to take a while it's going to be a while yeah yeah and what's interesting it'll be people 21 and older to access natural medicines at healing centers. It was first going to be only psilocybin or psilocin, but then they expand, it will be expanded. I guess initially it will be just that, mm -hmm. but in 2026, expanded to include DMT, Ibogaine, and mescaline, not from peyote. Not from peyote, yeah. Yeah. That's, Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, sort of a plant medicine legalization. In 2026. <laughs> it feels like far away. But I, I mean, this this stuff's changing fast, yeah. especially I bet from the perspective of people like, you know, Rick Doblin or Roland Griffith, people who've been at this for decades. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, with how slow it was moving before, I bet this feels like it's finally caught fire. Yeah. MAPS has been at this for, what, 35 plus years. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe this is finally the tipping point. Yeah. The the last place to mention, I think, is Australia. Yeah. Because of what just happened this month. You know, they became the first country to approve legal prescribable use of MDMA and psilocybin. And to, and to reschedule them, right? Yeah. So psilocybin for depression, MDMA for PTSD, uh, prescribable starting July 2023. Yeah. That's fast. That's yeah, coming that's right up. Because I've, we've always lamented about how how tragic it is that we can't send clients anywhere on the planet for legal MDMA mm-hmm. yet, outside of a clinical trial, of mm-hmm. course, or mm-hmm. a compassionate use exemptions, which is really like, you know, 10 to 15 centers across the country in the U.S. that could give it to five or so people. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yes, yeah, so I wonder how Australia is going to handle the influx of... of uh, Tourists, Travelers. medical tourists <laughs> going down there for, yeah. for treatment. Yeah, it makes you wonder because that's the problem with some of these programs that they don't always translate to expanding access. You know, there's a lot to factor in, including like the scalability, the training bottlenecks, the cost. Mm-hmm. Like these aren't insurance-funded options for people. Like medical cannabis isn't uh, in general because they're state run and not FDA approved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're still going to have organizations like Heroic Hearts, you know, these organizations, philanthropic organizations that take groups of people to places for ayahuasca ceremonies or to places where psilocybin is legal for psilocybin ceremonies. So still people will be leaving the country for psychedelic healing elsewhere where it's legal, but Mm -hmm. it will be exciting when we can keep people in house. Yeah. But that was neat to see in Australia, they call it schedule nine, nine out there, yeah. prohibited substances um, of the poison standard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the amendments will add psilocybin and MDMA to schedule eight, permitting their controlled use only for TRD and PTSD. Yeah, only for those indications. Yeah. Prescribed by psychiatrists who've gotten approval from a human eth- research ethics committee and authorized under, it's called the Authorized Prescriber Scheme. I thought that was a fun, fun name. Yeah. Yeah. But Australia, yeah, kudos to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been uh, kind of following along because I have this relationship with uh, Mind Medicine Australia, a nonprofit out there where I'll speak at their conference each year, or do mm-hmm. some webinars, and, and really a, a proactive group on the lobbying front and awareness that, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed interactions with with uh, people out there in those kind of settings. Cool. Cool. Well, anything else? Anything else you think we need to say about the legalization, decriminalization effort for psychedelics? Well, maybe just to point out that there are states, like Utah just did, where there's a task force or working group to study it. Mm -hmm. Texas, Hawaii, Maryland, Connecticut, Utah did that as well. There are states where there, there has been failed legislation attempts like Missouri, Oklahoma, Florida, West Virginia, Ohio, Vermont, Maine. Mm. Yeah. But then active legislation being debated in a longer list than both those lists combined. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. It is cool. Well, it's what a fun time to be alive. Fun time to be alive. Fun time to look forward to, I think, a not too distant future when we're going to have 
psychedelic assisted psychotherapy for a variety of conditions with a variety of medicines um, and hopefully accessible to a variety of folks. Yeah. And uh, that's the key there is I think the heart of this debate for me is um, speeding up access to to these things for those who need it most, who are suffering, and especially like where, you know, the suffering can be is intense, debilitating, even Mm life-threatening. And so that's why I think uh, and advocate for um, really proactive participation in this debate to have it happen as soon as possible in a good way. Yeah, it would be nice if the people who can make decisions about something like this at the government level are as would be as close to this stuff as you know people like you and me are we we see people and our clients our patients uh suffering tremendously and then we see these people who suffer tremendously who've had a variety of mental health interventions medicines and therapies included change dramatically in oh, yeah. response to like on a clinical trial one dose of psilocybin, not a miracle cure. And we've been accused of being a little too enthusiastic sometimes about psychedelics on this podcast, but, um, but certainly an improvement on much of what we have to offer. Well, I nominate you for mayor then, Steve. Ah, yes. Mayor of USA. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. With that, uh, I bid you adieu. Adieu. I see you later. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, like the videos, and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.